0: Hello and welcome back to the Core Consults RX podcast. What is going on, farm enthusiasts?
1: I feel like you completely changed up the intro from the first 200 episodes. We've yeah, done. no,
0: I did. I keep, I, I keep, I keep them guessing. You're keeping it fresh. Yes, yeah. I started saying that. My, I'll say something stupid like that every time. Like I'm doing my recorded lectures mm-hmm. for my PA students, and I'll say farm enthusiasts So then they'll make fun of me in class the next time. <laughs> like, listen, dude, I'm just trying to be super edgy. I think okay. you usually
1: say, what do you usually say? Podcasting world? Something like that. Wow. I don't know. Yeah, big change.
0: Yeah. I, th- the problem is I couldn't tell you for the life of me what I did
1: just now. <laughs> <laughs> I have to go back and listen to something, it. Something. Something about farm uh, enthusiasts. Yeah, something about that. We're, we're talking oh, about yeah, farm the, enthusiasts. We're talking to the agricultural world. Today. We are.
0: We, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we're we not talking PH. Yeah. So uh, what's new, man? Anything good? Um, no, not too much. Same, yeah. old, same old, same old. Same old, same old. Same old. Yes, sir. We have we done. uh, I know we've done a UTI episode in the past, but it's been probably a minute, right?
1: I didn't even look, but yeah, it's it has to have been a long time.
0: But uh, this is an accredited episode as well. So we'll do a a review of of, uh, uncomplicated and complicated ETI. And uh, if you are a free CE member and have an unlimited membership or you have access to all of their learning content, you can get access to all of our accredited podcast episodes as well. Each one is an hour of continuing education credit for pharmacists and nurses. And so at some point during this episode, we'll give you a uh, passcode that you will use to do the post-activity test, pass those 10 multiple-choice questions, and get your one-hour credit. And if you're not a member of FreeCE, definitely encourage you to check them out. They have all kinds of great you know, learning opportunities, good content. Even if you don't need it necessarily for CE, I would encourage you to you know, use it as a, as a good resource to continue your education on your own. And uh, that, with that being said, thanks to FreeCE for continuing to work with us. UTI. UTI. What do you want to start? Well. Some well, definitions, maybe? Yeah. You know. Some definitions per chance? What does
1: UTI mean? It would be just like us to go through the whole podcast and not, d- UTI not define and not say what, what UTI stands for, which is urinary tract infection, and then specifically define what it means, which um, it needs a couple of things. It needs the presence of bacteria in the urinary tract that's not accounted for by a specific contamination, but it also needs to be accompanied by dysuria- urinary frequency or urgency, and or a suprapubic pain. Um, they're kind of delineated by location. There's a lower tract infection, which you might refer to as a cystitis um, in the bladder, localized to the bladder, and an upper tract infection, pyelonephritis, um, an infection co- involving the kidneys. Some people might refer to it as a kidney infection. The lower tract infection, they might call a bladder infection.
0: Yeah. yeah. And I think that's that's important, too, because depending on which resource or guideline that you're looking at, it may be a little bit different terminology because, you know, Nicole and I were talking about this before we started recording. I know when I was in school, if a male patient had a UTI, it was automatically considered to be a complicated situation, complicated UTI. Um, whereas now, that's um, not necessarily uh, the case, again, depending on which, you know, group you're looking at or clinician you're speaking with but uh, we kind of have it separated into the acute, simple and acute complicated. Um, and acute complicated UTI will often include uh, net pyelonephritis, like Cole was just mentioned, the kidney infection. And so from an acute simple cystitis, you know, basically like Cole said, it's just a confined to the bladder, whereas now uh, complicated UTI is the signs and symptoms of the standard, you know, uncomplicated cystitis, along with uh, fever, um, um, which they define as having a, uh, a temperature of 99.9 degrees Fahrenheit or more, um, if the patient has chills, rare significant fatigue, uh, if they're having um, a lesbian baseline or, or other features of systemic illness, basically, um, if there's any flank pain, if there's any costovertebral angle tenderness, pelvic or perineal pain in men, um, those would all be indications of an acute UTI. But again, notice that that's not all men are just automatically complicated cases now. Right. So it's a little bit of a, a different
1: nuance. I remember learning that same thing. And there's also special populations. I feel like I remember an elder, maybe this could be wrong, but I feel like I remember an elderly patient, they would say was frequently complicated and a pregnant patient was frequently complicated from and, off the bat. And, uh,
0: yeah, I think they kind of just, they just considered them pre- pre- a separate like a separate category, special population.
1: Yeah. Just to be aware of kind of thing. Yeah. Um, you can also be classified with recurrent UTIs, and they define this as two or more episodes of acute bacterial cystitis in six months or three or more within a year. Um, they're characterized by multiple symptomatic infections with asymptomatic periods occurring between each episode, so it's not a continuation of the same one. It's, it's clear defined instances. Um, they have a couple of terms that they use that's uh, kind of based on the Um, infecting organism there's reinfections and that's when the um, subsequent infection is caused by a different organism that was originally isolated the majority of recurrent utis are going to be a different organism than the um, initial uti and then there's relapses and that's the development of repeated infections from the same initial organism and if that's happening it may indicate that there's a persistent infectious source
0: Now, from an epidemiological standpoint, um, obviously, UTIs are going to be a common occurrence, you know, just in the general population. They are more frequently occurring in female patients just because of the shorter urethra, and 5% of females um, will report having experienced significant bacteria um, by high school graduation and then one in five females will experience a UTI in their lifetime, and uh, many women will also experience, unfortunately, recurrent UTIs, and uh, that's going to be a higher risk for patients who did have a history of childhood infections as well, Um, but uh, recurrent UTIs is also more common in female patients as well.
1: Now, the elderly are kind of special in a different way in that there's not as much of a difference in rates between um, females and males, and the majority of them can be um, asymptomatic, um, and we may talk a little bit about whether you treat an asymptomatic bacteria or not if they're not experiencing symptoms. Um, the incidence is substantially increased for patients who are in nursing homes. Um, the risk increase is due to various comorbidities like um, obstruction from um, prostatic hypertrophy in males <laughs> or bladder emptying um, due to prolapse in females, fecal incontinence if a patient is demented, neuromuscular diseases like strokes and also um, catheterization.
0: All right, so from a pathophysiology standpoint, um, there's three kind of important factors to consider, um, you know, when we're thinking about the, the development or the risk of development of an infection. So the the size of the bacterial inoculum, the, the virulence of the microorganism itself, you know, what kind of resistance rates do they have or, you know, do they have any sort of like resistance mechanisms like beta-lactamase producing, you know... Um, Organisms, they have adherence mechanisms, um, cytotoxic proteins that they're able to release, you know, things like that that we would need to overcome with you know different types of therapy, and then also the host defense mechanisms as well. You know, does the patient have um, you know urological issues going on that it would uh, put them at higher risk for, for getting getting UTI in the first place? Um, that would obviously be a big factor in the the occurrence of of uh, a case of UTI.
1: Yeah, some of those um, in the urinary tract, some of those host defense is might be um, low pH extremes of osmolality, high urea and organic acid concentration, glycosaminoglycan slime layer which prevents the adherence of bacteria, um, uh, a protein called the tam horsefall protein which is a glycoprotein produced by the ascending limb of Henle and the distal tubule that is secreted into the urine and contains manose residues. Um, those can bind E. coli. Um, and um, and kind of uh, help prevent a UTI. Also, immunoglobulins like IgG and IgA. Um, if the bacteria reach the bladder, an inflammatory response is stimulated with the mobilization of PMNs, which are polymorphonuclear leukocytes.
0: Now, there are different risk factors. Um, Cole mentioned obstruction already, uh, but, you know, anything that is going to inhibit the normal flow of urine would be considered an, an obstruction. So like Cole mentioned, you know, BPH in, in male patients, um, some sort of a urethral stricture or tumor, um, a bladder uh, diverticula, or, you know, medications that have anticholinergic effects is another uh, big risk factor, obviously, as well. And then, um, like Cole mentioned, also neurologic man- malfunctions from you know, stroke or spinal cord injuries, things like that. And then catheterization, pregnancy, the use of spermicides um, are also um, other risk factors that we would consider uh, for patients with especially recurrent UTIs.
1: There are some modifiable behaviors, things that you can change that might decrease your risk of a UTI. For instance, if you're using a barrier method contraceptive or a spermicidal product, Um that can increase your risk. So consider changing your mode of contraception, um, increasing water intake. Um, if you're not having an adequate amount of water. Um, so if you're consuming less than 1.5 liters per day, um, increasing your water intake over that is beneficial. Do you drink a lot of water?
0: So I really don't, I mean, I try to drink some, but it definitely, I'm not somebody that has the bottle that walks around all day long and just constantly is drinking water. If I
1: don't specifically think about it and make myself do it at work, I will not drink any water. Yeah. I have like a diet soda I drink at lunch, mm-hmm. but I could. if I'm busy, I will go the whole day without drinking any water. Then I get home and I feel terrible because yeah. I'm, I'm dehydrated. Yeah, kidneys are shutting down. Yes. Uh, I don't know. I don't, I don't really love water you know Dude, even though means, it sustains my life i just don't love <laughs> i'm I don't just love
0: not i'm just not really a big fan of it you know yeah. <laughs> it's just it's, so, it's think, just bland. Like, who does it <laughs> think
1: it is it's, it's too bland <laughs> it needs to spice itself up yeah. a little bit.
0: that's why I, I only get my water with a uh, crystal light packets. <laughs> <That's> right. all right <laughs> do, do,
1: do you use those things like to flavor it up no no i just I have a big tumbler at work that i drink but i don't know i just you're a tumbler guy i'm a
0: tumbler yeah, yeah you know I don't know. I, I feel like that's just I would see it and then I'd be like, it's too much work. <laughs> right.
1: The Crystal Light packets. Yeah, or just the Tumbler. Oh, in the General, because
0: yeah. then I'd be thinking about I've like, not drinking that much of that today. Yeah. What do you drink out of? I, like I'll have a Dutch Pepper Zero, and then or so you like don't you have, said,
1: so you don't have anything that just has water in it. No, not okay. usually. Okay. I'll get a water bottle usually. These like are a, you know the diet sodas are mostly water. Mostly
0: water. That's what I tell my that's wife. That's exactly right. It doesn't go. But it, he doesn't what? buy it. But. And the thing is, that that's just the stone cold facts. <laughs> it's just the truth. Man. <laughs> so I'm, just, you know, it is what it is. I guess so <clears throat> yeah. you can't win them all. And you can't. But uh, especially with your wife, <laughs> that's the last time you're going to be winning an argument. Um, some. Myths. Did you already talk about these myths? No. Okay. Myths um, regarding recurrent UTIs or things that can put you at risk for UTIs. I thought this was kind of a weird section of the uh, recurrent UTI uh, UTI guidelines that came out from the American Urological Association back in 2019. Uh, Just because you don't see too many guidelines, I feel like, that address... A myth, <laughs> you know, right? I feel like that's probably one of the first times I've seen this. But I like
1: you guys it. might be thinking this, but just so it, you know, it's yeah. not true, and we're going to make it official in this guideline.
0: Exactly, you might as well believe the Earth's flat. <laughs> but uh, there's, you know, some case control studies that they were citing in order to come up with these these quote unquote myths. But basically, uh, they said that changes in hygiene practices, avoidance of hot tubs, uh, voiding before or after a sexual encounter. Tampon use and douching all uh, do not play a role in recurrent UTIs. Which there's definitely a few of those that I was really surprised by. That. And they basically are saying that there's not enough evidence to say for sure in a guideline that they're. That they do so do you play feel like role. it's
1: there's not enough evidence for them to recommend doing any of those things or, or avoiding they, any it of those? Does it seem things? like or avoid, or does it seem like they're saying like? No, this it, is. Just, I mean, looked, the fact that they're referring to it as they refer to it as a myth, or yeah. is this kind of how you refer to it? No,
0: no, I think if I remember correctly, I think I, I, I better check myself because it's been a minute
1: since I looked at that. <laughs> they're just saying there's not enough evidence.
0: Yeah, so that's what I. I kind of what I'm thinking of. Oh, that's gonna drive me crazy then. <laughs>
1: But uh, but yeah, so those things
0: are basically they're saying they they have not enough evidence to support their use. But
1: for things that you frequently have heard of, you know, it's, it's not. I mean, to the, se-
0: yeah, several of those things are on
1: there. Surprising that it didn't result in and uh, you know and decrease I guess rates or something. In
0: my thought process would be talking to a patient. I mean, it's not going to hurt anything to do right. a lot of those things. So why you know if they feel like it's helping, then sure, go for
1: it um as far as what organisms are going to be the culprit there's one that is uh, very much the most common which is E coli in uncomplicated cystitis it's going to be 75 to 95% of the cases so the vast majority in a complicated uh, situation it's uh, less than 65% so you're going to have to be thinking other things um more often uh less common organisms for an uncomplicated UTI would be the um enterobacter um klebsiella pneumoniae proteus um, there's also staph, saprophyticus, uh, uncommonly you might see pseudomonas and you might be thinking that more often if a patient is, you know, has a risk factor for that. Um, and rarely you may see enterococcus species. Very similar, um, with complicated as far as the, um, the less common bacteria, enterobacter, um, bacteria, pseudomonas, um, which would be more common in patients with healthcare exposures, enterococcus, and then you can have like, um, Um, MSSA or MRSA staff to be uh, aware of.
0: Now, antibiotic resistance, definitely something that you hear people talk about a lot, but I feel like this is a very good example of kind of how this can kind of play out in the real world. So, from 2000 to 2009, there was a threefold increase in the prevalence of extended spectrum beta-lactamase-producing Enterobacteriaceae in hospitalized patients. So, huge jump um, in those ESBLs. There, uh, six, basically six percent of these 453 E. coli isolates that uh, they we're looking at this one study, um, produced ESBLs, and um, that was in a specific patient group that was presenting with pyelonephritis uh, to the ED. Uh, There's also uh, some evidence showing the emergence of a specific um, E. coli strain, um, ST131, that is uh, responsible for the fluoroquinolone resistance that's oftentimes associated with E. coli and UTIs. And then there's a VA study that also uh, was looking at this E. coli ST131. And in their study, it accounted for 28% of the E. coli isolates nationwide. So very resistant. In fact, when I, uh, when I was in school, so this was um, on rotations, it was like 2014, I guess. Um, I remember being in the STICU. And in order to use Cipro in the STICU, you had to get an infectious disease. Position oh, cool. to like basically sign off on it mm-hmm. and there was only certain things you could even ask for it to be used in the first place like if they had leech therapy some random things like that because the e coli resistance to e coli uh, to cipro was so crazy high in that area really uh i don't know if it's still on you know restriction like that but i remember it was like a really big deal to try to use cipro it was in south carolina yeah, yeah it was charleston Oh, really? The MUSA.
1: Oh, wow. we are very yeah. specific now. No, I
0: mean, I'm just, I was in school there, so okay. I was just oh, yeah, on rotation. Yeah. Yep. And I don't know if that's the... I haven't looked at their antibiogram yeah. in a long time, so I don't know if that's the case, but...
1: No, I think that highlights the importance of looking at your antibiogram if you're going to be dealing with this a lot and, um, you know, look at... Look at resistance maps for instance you can find a resistance map for e coli to fluoroquinolones and other things um based on your region and area and that sort of thing to be aware of what you might run into especially if there's a treatment failure um something to highlight is um, vre vancomycin resistant enterococci Um, it's frequently isolated in hospitalized patients and maybe due to extensive use of kind of broad spectrum cephalosporins like third generation cephalosporin antibiotics um it's a major area of concern because of limited susceptibility to other available um, antibiotics that you can use, and it's become more widespread and more <laughs> common in long-term hospitalizations or patients with um, malignancies. There's two specifically. I didn't want to try to pronounce them, but I guess I will. Um, uh, intero- I guess to be enterococcus mm-hmm. facelis and enterococcus facium. Facium. Okay. Yeah,
0: close enough. Yeah, close I like enough. it. I was better than I would have done <laughs> Uh-huh. So, th- because of all the different resistance, you know, patterns that we're seeing, and you know, the mutations and whatnot, antimicrobial stewardship is obviously you know, a very important aspect of of managing UTIs, and it's probably one of the bigger culprits. Bes- you know, besides maybe like a sinus infection for causing a lot of this resistance anyway, just because of the frequent antibiotic dosing for you know, patients that maybe didn't even need it to begin with, but, uh, we want to reduce inappropriate treatment. So in other words, patients are asymptomatic, you know, we're not treating them until they start developing those, those symptoms. You know, we also want to decrease broad spectrum antibiotic use. If we do a culture and sensitivity report and we find out that the broad spectrum empiric therapy that we were giving is not necessary, we can deescalate, then that's always a good idea. And then always treat, treat the patient for the shortest possible duration and, uh, always keep Keeping in mind that um, that resistance reduction, um, if at all possible, or resistance risk reduction, I should say.
1: Um, yeah, it, it, these are important interventions that pharmacists can make, but it, it isn't also important to think, you know, think hard about how you approach these sorts of things when a prescriber is trying to prescribe something and we're acting as like the antibiotic police, you know? Right. Like, eh, no, no antibiotics for you, you know, we're not going to.
0: Well, uh, actually. Yeah, yeah. Yeah.
1: You know, just think about it. <coughs> Professional
0: um, professional uh, interactions yeah. need to be professional, yeah. I and mean, you'll be taken a lot more seriously. I have a you,
1: feeling that you you may have a you know a request of that provider at some point in the future, right? So you, you know,
0: gotta be nice. Got to got to always an interprofessional all,
1: respect. All be nice. Um, the elderly and UTIs is a very important topic. We could probably do a whole episode on the elderly and UTIs um, because they UTIs affect. The elderly in a much more significant fashion than they infect, than they affect younger patients, which is probably why I have this memory of kind of considering a patient over sixty five with the UTI as being complicated or at least more severe because there there's um, so much stuff. Some going some non specific symptoms, some non urinary symptoms that they can experience that is that the younger population will not. Altered mental status is extraordinarily common in, with UTIs in um, patients over sixty five. If you present to the ER. With altered mental status or confusion, you know they're going to work you up for uh, a stroke. They're going to work you up for electrolyte abnormalities. That are going to test check your urine for a UTI because it's so common. Um, it, they can change eating habits. They can cause GI symptoms. Um, they can um, <coughs> kind of give symptoms of a complicated cystitis, even if it isn't necessarily. Um, uh, but they also they can have a frequent development of upper UTI with um, bacteremia. So um, definitely um, consider. A, a, Prevention and treatment of UTI in an elderly patient is a significant issue.
0: And, and you know, we're trying to avoid a, the patient developing a, a severe UTI and, and having potential complications arise from something as, would, you know, I don't want to say as simple as a UTI, but would would seemingly, you know, is a simple fix. We it, generally it,
1: think of them as being benign. Yeah. But not but, always.
0: You know, they can get uh, some serious complications, you know, associated with them is if, if not treated properly or if we don't recognize, you know, the, the patient having a resistant bug or something like that. So, bacteremia, sepsis, multiple organ system dysfunction, shock, um, acute renal failure, all things that we want to avoid. And uh, if those things do occur, that would indicate that the patient does have a, a severe UTI and, you know, we need to treat accordingly.
1: Um, how the urine is collected is important, too. Um, one method is the midstream clean catch method. Um, you want to have a clean urethral opening, void at least 20 to 30 milliliters of urine, collect the urine, process it, or refrigerate it. Or I should say process it, it immediately or refrigerate it as soon as possible because if a specimen's left at room temperature for several hours, some bacteria can develop, it can cause a false positive result.
0: Yeah, I've seen... Uh... One of my family members was in a long term facility. Uh, They were getting, uh, they got the urine sample from her bedpan. And I said, Oh, I bet that's, is that a clean catch? (laughs) That's clean. (laughs) Was that a clean catch? It's it's just been been sitting there. Even my mom, who's not a medical professional, she's like, what are you doing? <laughs> it, was, it was the most insane thing I That's ever saw. Crazy. Yeah. I was like, Oh, we have to get a urine sample to see if there's any bacteria. I was like, I'm going to go on a limb and say there's bacteria. there's bacteria in there. It's been sitting out for a few hours. <clears throat> That's nuts. But if a midstream clean catch method is not an option for the patient, you know, maybe they have you know, a reason why they, they are just not capable of, you know, coordinating that, you know, catch. There's also catheterization. You know, if the patient is, is, uh, not able to cooperate with the the method of a clean catch, we can catheterize them and, and get their sample that way. If the patient is unable to void, you know on. It will. Um, if they've had, uh, you know, if they've had their prostate removed, something like that, there can be some issues there that can make it difficult to avoid on command. And so um, that'd be another reason to do a, a catheterization uh, method instead. And then uh, the procedure itself is associated with 1% to 2% infection risk. So that's the other, you know, downside of, of catheterization. But other than it being uncomfortable and not very pleasant, um, it, it does have its own. Infection risk associated with it as well. And then there's also a suprapubic bladder aspiration, which is a direct aspiration by needle insertion in the bladder. So this would be, Ugh. yeah, um, this would be if they had like unretractable foreskin, diarrhea, that's, um, you know, unrelenting, unsuccessful urethral catheterization, uh, if they've had some sort of like urethral surgery, um, labial adhesions, labial edema, things of that nature. And uh, have you ever seen, like, what that looks like, the suprapubic pubic I haven't. Bladder aspiration?
1: But it, it's this is how I know that I wouldn't have been able to really... I mean, maybe I could get used to it, but I wouldn't have preferred a job where I would be doing a lot of procedures, like my little brother works in, in thoracic surgery. Mm-hmm. Because just imagining... Like, you know the feeling of fullness in your bladder. Like, mm-hmm. when you wake up first thing in the morning, you got to go to the bathroom. Yeah. And, like, any pressure there is just extremely uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Now imagine that, but now they're shoving a needle, in, you know, into your bladder.
0: Or... Just you know, because you know how I am, I'm a class, I'm a half full kind of guy. What if unless you, your bladder is you know totally full? How you, well, you know, how, like when you're like, oh my gosh, you know, you get that relief after you empty your bladder. Uh-huh. Well, maybe that's the feeling you get with this. You're like, okay, sure, there's a needle, <laughs> right. of, there's a needle in my pelvis, but <laughs> <They're> just, <laughs> I'm all of a sudden feeling very
1: <laughs> relieved. <laughs> they're just retru- they're pulling back the plunger, and you're like. You're like, this is perfect. <laughs> this, this is exactly great. I I, I'm actually
0: only going to empty my bladder this method from well, now Well, I
1: mean, I will say that for, for people who are unable to void and have that feeling, uh, I imagine it would be extremely, you know, uh, an extreme relief to have that done. <laughs> but apart from that, but sounds, apart from that, it's probably excruciatingly painful. Yeah, it's not great at all. So this is a uh, diagram
0: of it from those of you who are interested. or If you have a New England Journal of Medicine subscription, you can see a video of them kind of walking through the steps. It's not too complicated, but... Also, uh, does not look like it's very comfortable. It's not something I want to have happen.
1: Yeah. Okay, so as far as the urinalysis after you get the sample and kind of evaluating it, they do a microscopic examination of the sample. Um, as far as what you're looking for, you're looking for how much bacteria is in the urine. So um, 10 to the fifth power or more colony-forming units per milliliter is indicative of a UTI, though as many as 50% of women will present with clinical symptoms of a UTI, even if the, the colony-forming units' uh, counts are lower. Um, there A lot of times hematuria can be present. You can have some blood in the urine. Um, some protein in the urine is common with infection, and that's usually transient, usually goes away. Um, if it's um, persistent, um, it could be related to um, uh, overflow, tubular issues, glomerular issues, that sort of thing.
0: And then there's also um, some other things to keep in mind. Like, so nitrites, um, nitrates are formed basically when bacteria reduce um, the normally present nitrates in the urine. And uh, so a nitrite would would obviously indicate there's bacteria present. So a a false positive um, is very unlikely. Um, False negatives can occur, however, and um, it can be a gram positive pathogen or a um, Pseudomonas um, isolate that. They basically don't don't reduce nitrates, and so you wouldn't have that nitrite uh, being positive on the, the urinalysis. And then we also have leukocyte esterase, which is just a rapid screening test. It's it's looking for um, pyuria, and uh, it's very sensitive, highly specific, and uh, that's another obviously a, a quick indication of whether or not the patient has a an infection or not. And then we also have our our culture because if we, especially in a case where we can get a sterile you know Sample a clean catch, so to speak, then we can run the culture and susceptibility report. That way, we know that the empiric therapy that we selected is accurate, or if we need to either escalate or hopefully de escalate and use something with a more narrow um, spectrum of activity. Yeah.
1: Um, and we'll talk about the specific antibiotics in a bit, but um, as far as some general things to consider with your treatment choice, it's individualized. You want to consider the severity of the signs and symptoms. The site of infection, is it complicated? Is it uncomplicated? Does the patient have any allergies? Have they been compliant to um, treatments before? What are your local practice patterns and local resistance patterns with the antibiogram? Is the drug available? Is it high cost or low cost? And has the patient had recent antimicrobial use as well?
0: All things to consider. Yep. Yep. And uh, I'll show you this right here. For those of you who have not seen an antibiogram before, if you're watching the video version. Um, so this shows you the different isolates on the, um, on the left-hand side. And then um, across the top, you see the different antibiotics that they tested against it. And basically, were, um, the, the higher the, the number, the, um, more, uh, or the, the more susceptibility that the pathogen will have. So it's antimicrobial susceptibilities. And uh, so, yeah, the ones that have zero, I don't think we're going to use ampicillin on a cinibacter. So that kind of makes sense. Hmm. Um, so if you haven't seen those, uh, the antibiogram should be available at any of the big um, you know, hospital you know, settings or any big uh, healthcare system um, should have their own version of an antibiogram based on similar resistance patterns and things like that. Right. Um.
1: Okay, so we're going to talk a bit about asymptomatic bacteriuria, or I'll just talk about it briefly, um, which is more of an incidental finding maybe um, on a urine culture of uh, bacteria in the urine, but the patient's not having any of the symptoms that we've gone through of a UTI. Um, So generally speaking, treatment is not necessary in patients with significant bacteriuria where they're meeting that threshold of 10 to the 5th power or more colony-forming units per milliliter without the signs and symptoms of urinary tract infection. There's not great data showing a benefit in treating these patients. There are certain exceptions where you might be concerned that even an asymptomatic bacteria could develop into something more significant, um, possibly pregnancy. um, If patients are undergoing a urologic intervention or renal transplant patients, um, you would be more concerned. Don't want them getting
0: pilo. No. All right. So, before we jump into treatment of uncomplicated cystitis, let's give the super secret password because it's almost exactly at the halfway mark. Nice. So, today's password is BY UTI. <laughs> so, B Y E U T I all capital letters, one word, no space, and you'll have access to our super fun post activity test.
1: Bye. Yes, not B U Y Right. You don't want to buy one.
0: You not, want to say goodbye. Not B-I. Right. Because yeah. then you'd have that and something else.
1: But B-Y-E.
0: Right. Because you have upper respiratory and upper urinary tract. <laughs> 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 right. <laughs> that yeah. would be a nightmare. It'd be a double UTI. So, yes. Um, you, it's by UTI, B-Y-E, UTI. And then we will be, uh, you'll get your 10 question quiz and you'll blow through that because it's super easy and you'll get your one hour credit. Yes. Treatment of un uncom- not back to you. It's <laughs> um, a <laughs> so treatment of uncomplicated cystitis. So we we have our three first line agents that we typically consider for an uncomplicated cystitis case. So we have our nitrofurantoin monohydrate macro crystals, so the macrobid, basically the twice daily version of uh, nitrofurantoin, and um, it's given for five days. There's very low resistance rates. It's very similar efficacy, if not even better efficacy than some of the other proven agents. And it is very effective for uncomplicated cystitis. However, if you are concerned at all about pyelonephritis or have any suspicion of pyelonephritis, uh, you don't want to use nitroferantoin because you will not um, get basically it out of the bladder. It's accumulating in the bladder, which is why it works so well for cystitis, but not going to help um, further up the urinary tract and then we also have bactrim as an option so the bactrim ds which is the um, self-methoxazole trimethoprim and you can do one twice a day for 3 days as well now the thing to make sure that you are looking at is to make sure that there's no uh, or that the resistance rate specifically with the e coli to uh, bactrim is is 20% or less in your local resistance prevalence and then if the patient has used Bactrim within the last three months to treat UTI. Don't use it again because then that resistance rate is that much higher. And then third, we have phosphomyosin, uh, which is a three gram single dose antibiotic option. Uh, It's tends to have a little bit lower efficacy than the regimens above, especially nitroferantoin has been compared to head to head. And uh, it's one that we typically will, um, avoid an early nephritis because of the low serum levels that we can reach with fosfomycin And um, again, we have better options that are um, more targeted for that area of the body um, and better p- tissue penetration and all that. But either uh, of these three options are technically okay. Again, assuming that the resistance rates for the back is 20% or less, all three of these agents are potentially first line options.
1: Yeah. Um, Along with that is how macrobid works and some things to be aware of. I feel like it's used so commonly that we feel like it's benign, but it does have some warnings to be aware of. Um, so it is metabolized to reactive intermediates that inactivate or alter bacterial ribosomal proteins. Um, it inhibits um, protein synthesis, aerobic energy metabolism, nucleic acid, and cell wall synthesis as well. Um, warnings to be aware of. It can cause hepatotoxicity, can cause hemolytic anemia, peripheral neuropathy, and pulmonary toxicity. Um, If a patient experiences a persistent cough, chest pain, shortness of breath, they should definitely call their provider. Um, More common adverse effects would be GI upset, headache, and it can cause a brown discoloration of the urine as well.
0: I feel like the pulmonary fibrosis risk and things like that, that's – not something we typically would worry about, obviously, in a five-day course. But where I will say that I've seen a case of this anyway with um, pulmonary fibrosis specifically was when a patient was taking nitroferentoin as a prophylactic agent. Elderly patient taking nitroferentoin once a day, every single day for extended period of time, months and months, if not a year, and um, developed pulmonary fibrosis due to the nitroferentoin. So that's where I would say kind of have your... You know, those, those more severe warnings on your radar would be for those particular patients. Sure. So some other things to keep in mind with nitrofurantoin. If you look at the dose adjustments, um, if it'll say in the package insert, creatinine clearance less than um, thirty, we we are not usually using, not because it's going to cause harm necessarily, or you know worsen kidney function or anything like that, um, but we know that we're trying to get the medication uh, to accumulate in the bladder. Nitrofurantoin is basically. Um, Excreted through the urine unchanged, and so it is, does a good job of accumulating the, in the bladder if the ki- kidney function is, you know, what we we're expecting it to be f- for the patient. And so, if a uh, patient's creatinine clearance less than thirty, we probably would want to use a different agent just because the. Nitrofentone concentration won't be as as uh, potent as we would we would like. Right. Some other uh, issues with nitrofentone. It can cause some GI issues, and uh, not usually as bad as something like you know high dose of amoxicillin or anything like that. But it can cause some some GI um, issues with tolerability. And then. Um, you know, the good news is is much less documented resistance with nitroferentoin compared to, like, Bactrim, and uh, it is, you know, very uh, bioavailable, whether it's fasting. You actually get a little bit better bioavailability with food, and you can cut down on some of the GI issues, so it's probably a good idea to remind patients to take it with a meal.
1: Yep. Uh, Then there's Bactrim, like Mike mentioned. The sulfamethoxazole piece inhibits folic acid synthesis. The trimethoprim piece inhibits tetrahydrofolate synthesis. Um, It can cause GI issues as well. It can also cause um, skin reactions like Stevens-Johnson syndrome. Photosensitivity is common. Hyperkalemia is one that can be concerning, um, that it, it can cause. A short course isn't as big of a deal, but there's... We've discussed data before that, in combination with other meds, can be concerning. Um, it can also cause hypoglycemia, interestingly, but it has good oral bioavailability—ninety to a hundred percent. i looked
0: this up one time because with the hypoglycemia risk, and it basically is um, working as if it's a sulfonylurea. Um, oh, And binding to the the of the um, the beta cells to release that insulin. Is that but the trimethoprim it,
1: piece? Yeah, and and so it's yeah, yeah,
0: and, or no, I think it's actually the okay. is all pretty piece. Now that I say that, but it basically has like sulfonylurea like characteristics, and that's what causes it. Because I saw a guy who was on glipizide started Bactrim, and he was having like lows in the forties, and had no idea why. It's the Bactrim. huh? So interesting. There you go. Food for thought. Food for thought. The, here's another thing that kind of happened just recently. Um, the somebody was telling me about uh, a patient they had that. Uh, had photosensitivity to Bactrim like weeks after stopping it. And I mean, horrible reaction. blist Blisters. Um, I mean, it was I saw the pictures of it. The uh, patient's family member showed me and I was like, wow, that is a... That is not... I was expecting like, you know, some red, you know, photosensitivity kind of thing. Red skin. I was like... Wow, really? that's a little more severe than I thought. It was like two weeks after stop. Is I looked it up, and there's definitely case reports of that happening. So
1: later, thought
0: that was interesting. You
1: want to hear something interesting? Sure. My whole family, extended and everything, went to the beach for a week. Mm-hmm. None of us got sunburned. We lather ourselves in sunscreen. Not a single sunburn the whole week. Isn't that crazy?
0: Well, if you if you lather yourself in isn't that the point of sunscreen, I know, but
1: for for a, I feel for like, 15 people, I feel like you, you're including just, children, your
0: disappointment is like it means you have no faith in the sunscreen. I, I mean,
1: I don't have a whole lot of faith in sunscreen, <laughs> but I don't know. It's crazy that none of us just ran into an issue where it wore off or washed off or forgot to put it on. No yeah. sunburns. Good job. I've Never had a trip like that.
0: Yeah, I always get sunburn when I go out, especially early in the summer. You don't Forget seem like it. a
1: sunscreen guy. Oh, well, it's
0: usually what it is. I'll be like, hey, you know, tell my wife to help me out, put it on my back, whatever, and then I'll just get like handprints all over <laughs> me,
1: cause She'll just not do it right. Anna, um, she we she used the spray one time, and mm-hmm. I guess it was just a little bit too close. And so – You see the streak marks. Streak marks, just lines, just a big zigzag of sunburn and no sunburn. I'm like perfect. I have a gra-
0: graffiti <laughs> sunburn. Right. All right, so we got phosphomyosin uh, is our third option, like we said. Um, this is working to inhibit bacterial wall synthesis um, by inactivating the transfer transferase enzymes, which is um, critical for cell wall synthesis, and it's one of the rate-limiting steps. And so uh, adverse effects, um, GI issues, nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, rash, uh, headache, angioedema have been reported as well. It does have um, fairly poor um bioavailability, uh, poor oral absorption, and so it's got a bioavailability of around 37%, and it's probably why you have to have such a big dose all at once. Uh, but it's it's administered as a uh, powder that's mixed in with three to four ounces of water. You don't have to take it with food, and uh, but it can help them with the GI issues for some patients. Um, where I would say that this may be a good option would be patients who you're real suspicious of their adherence, rates you know that you're worried if you start my antibiotic they may not follow through they may not finish the course what have you and so this could be a convenient one and done option and hopefully treat the patient yeah it is uh, a little bit more costly than the other two first line options so it, that you know you got to make sure the patient has good insurance and can afford it but all three of those would be technically options that are all correct
1: yep as far as first line um, there are alternative treatment options um, like fluoroquinolones, which would be considered second line because of increasing resistance rates. Um, maybe we want to preserve them for more serious infections. They also have some additional warnings and precautions, adverse events uh, to be aware of. But you could use Cipro 250 milligrams twice a day for three day, three days or um, levofloxin, 250 milligrams twice a day for three days. If you happen to know that the organism is gram positive, um, you can use Augmentin as first line. Uh, but otherwise it, it can be an alternative because the E. coli resistance rates in the U.S. are up to 40%.
0: Even with the beta-lactamase inhibitor. Even with the crazy. beta-lactamase inhibitor.
1: Um, e. coli, you did it again. <laughs> I just, coming back with a vengeance. Uh, but 500 milligrams twice a day for seven days is what you would use. You can also use um, um, uh, cephalosporin antibiotics like cefpodoxime, 100 milligrams twice a day for seven days. I've seen that done. Ceftonir 300 milligrams twice a day for seven days. Um, They're never first line for empiric treatment Um, if recommended agents can't be used. um, Test of cure is recommended due to high recurrence rates.
0: And Cole mentioned some of the... You know warnings and the concerns with fluoroquinolones, but just to kind of reiterate, you know, mechanistically, fluoroquinolones are working on DNA gyrase, and so um, they are basically inhibiting the relaxation of the DNA supercoil, and so they're coming at the the the, the eradication of the bacteria from a, a unique mechanism of action compared to a lot of our other agents. The problem is is the resistance, like Cole mentioned, and then the, the plethora of adverse effects. So photosensitivity, QTC prolongation, pretty bad GI issues. Um, it can cause issues with blood sugar management. And then the box warnings, there's so many. Tendon rupture, mm-hmm. which have you ever actually encountered anybody that's had that with a fluoroquinolone? Mm-hmm. So I've seen it twice now. So I was like, uh, first time I was like, okay. Maybe it's not textbook. And then the second time, I was like, yikes. we got to start telling people not to lift weights when they're on
1: Cipro. Was Aaron Rodgers taking a fluoroquinolone? He might have. Did, I'll call him. Did you see what happened to him? Yeah, his Achilles again? popped, didn't it? Yeah, yeah. That
0: stinks. Um, but, yeah, I, one of them that I saw wasn't Achilles tendon. No, really? it was a runner, and just nobody warned him. And then one was this. You know, real muscular guy, and I, I said something about you know about the fluoroquinolone And this is when I was like an intern, so I was so proud of myself. Mm-hmm. Told him about the quadrupedal and all that stuff, and so like, just take it easy when you're lifting and stuff. And he's just staring at me. He's like, "Are you serious?" And I'm like. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I didn't know what I'm like. Why I don't know why you're getting madder at me. <laughs> Are you gonna beat me up? But uh, but he like rolls his sleeve up and he should he had like this huge scar in his bicep because he had apparently been lifting when he was on Ugh. the same kind of thing sinus infection or whatever it was a previous year and his bicep like one of the tendons of his bicep went up, they had a fish it out of his arm. Oh my god! Yeah, so, it, oh, yeah, just give him nitrofurantoin. <laughs> so <laughs> well, lots and lots of different adverse
1: effects. We at that to be aware time, of. every, you know, every um, UTI in males may have been considered That's true. complicated, so you might be going straight to something like a fluoroquinolone. But now, uncomplicated cystitis in males, at least from from some people who would, would recommend, would say that empiric treatment, um, with one of the first-line agents for females, the Macrobid, Bactrim, fosfomycin um, uh, could be a reasonable option uh, to start with. Um, if they if they have more severe cystitis symptoms or concerns about early involvement of the prostate, then you might go straight to fluoroquinolone. But otherwise, you can do macrobid. Um, a seven day or shorter course of the selected antibiotic is likely sufficient. That's notable because previously we would, we would kind of consider longer courses for males, um, but you can do the course recommended for that we kind of went through for females. If you feel more comfortable, maybe a couple extra days, um, but seven days or shorter is likely sufficient for males as well. All right. So let's kind of go back through this algorithm
0: a little bit. Um, so this is, we're using the uh, up-to-date um, empiric antimicrobial selection for women with acute simple cystitis. If you want to uh, reference this later on for those of you who have a up-to-date membership. So this is a, uh, Basically, patients presenting with suspected cystitis, uh, classic symptoms, dysuria, urinary frequency, urgency, suprapubic pain, things like that. Then we also want to look for any type of signs that the infection is extended past the bladder, you know, the fever, flank pain, those type of things, like we mentioned. And then also looking at the risk factors for multi drug resistant gram negative. You know infection risk, and so you know if they've been residing in a nursing home or a long care acute care facility. Um, that they, they used fluoroquinolones uh, or Bactrim, you know, in the recent past, um, but within the last three months, if they travel for different parts of the world. They have uh, high rates of um, multi-drug resistant organisms, and so you know those things can be considered. And if those aren't really a risk, then we would look to give one of our first. Um, Three options that we've kind of talked about, nitrofranetone, bactrim, and phosphomyosin. If, you know, the, all of those are not possibilities for the patient for whatever reason, uh, then we would assess whether we're going to go the, the, the beta-lactam route or the fluoroquinolone route, and that, again, would be patient-specific and what kind of comorbidities they have. And uh, if you do go the beta-lactam route with, you know, Augmentin or, septenir, or um like Cole said, make sure that you do a test of cure just because there is uh, higher failure rates with those types of
1: antibiotics. A lot of, a lot more resistance to worry about. Yep. Yep. Um, is that all you want to go through with the algorithm or for, for the,
0: um, yeah, that's
1: good for the simple cystitis. Okay. And then, uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah,
0: we'll go through the other ones as we go. Okay. Um,
1: so yeah, well the last part of this we'll end talking about, um, complicated UTI, including pyelonephritis. Um, Empiric therapy must be broad spectrum with definitive therapy based on the culture and sensitivity that you get later. Uh, There is a concern for overall rising rates of resistance in um, hospitals and in the community, especially resistance in patients who have received fluoroquinolone, so be aware of that. Um, Outpatient management is acceptable for patients with an acute complicated UTI um, if it's mild to moderate who can be stabilized, so they don't have to be hospitalized every time for a complicated UPI UTI. But you would admit them um, in certain situations. So if they're septic or otherwise critically ill, you would want them in the hospital. Um, some of those kind of indications might be uh, persistently high fever, over 101 degrees Fahrenheit, um, or pain, marked ability or inability to maintain oral hydration or take oral meds. They would need to be um, hospitalized. So if we're
0: looking at the empiric therapy options for an acute complicated urinary tract infection, it's going to be different depending on whether we're treating the outpatient or inpatient setting, obviously. So in the inpatient setting, we're just, again, verifying that the, they have typical UTI symptoms plus the you know, clinical symptoms of showing that the, the infections progress past just the bladder, the flank pain and all that. And then we would still want to get the urine culture susceptibility testing so we can double-check our empiric therapy option and make sure that we made the right choice. And then we also want to look for those risk factors for multidrug-resistant uh, pathogens. And from there, we would um, go with either uh, a the fluoroquinolone route, which um, we typically want to start, um, you know, with if they're having some kind of contraindication to a uh, fluoroquinolone, if they have you know high risk for fluoroquinolone resistance, um, things like that, then we can go with something like erdapenem, you know, carbapenem. It's a little bit you know more broad spectrum um if we're not worried about any of those fluoroquinolone resistance you know risk factors then we can go with one dose of of urtapenem and then we would follow it with a fluoroquinolone for a few days of the cipro or levo now if um if the patient and I'm sorry, let me back up because I think I maybe didn't say something that's probably going to be confusing now. So once you've gone through the diagnosis, you're saying, okay, this is an acute complicated urinary tract infection, um, the multidrug resistant Risk factors is what would push you down the path that we were just talking about. If they do have any of those risk factors, so that's where the theertapenem and the fluoroquinolone you know would come in. If they do not have those risk factors, then it will be a little bit different. Um, we are still looking at whether or not they could tolerate or, or should be on a fluoroquinolone, um, and if. You know if they do have a contraindication, or reason why they couldn't be, then you get one dose of a long-acting parenteral agent, so it can be ertapenem, it could be ceftriaxone, it could be gentamicin, and then you would follow it with the non-fluoroquinolone agent, so either Bactrim, uh, cefpodoxime. you could use Augmentin, um, but again, the, because it's complicated and affecting higher up just the bladder, you wouldn't want to use something like nitro or one of those. Right. And if they are not having a contraindication or they don't have a contraindication to a fluoroquinolone, and you, you know, you know that the resistance rates are uh, are not to, you know, basically below 10%, then we can do a fluoroquinolone as monotherapy. If the resistance rate, especially for E. coli, is above 10, then give them a loading dose of that long-acting parenteral agent. So the or ortopenum genomycin, one of those, and then do the fluoroquinolone after that
1: oral, right. orally. And if you're if you're kind of going broad spectrum and you get um, susceptibility results, you can deescalate. Deescalate, there. yes. So we'll quickly go through some specifics with some of The drugs Mike mentioned, so aminoglycosides. There's gentamicin, tobramycin, also something called plazomycin, uh, which is, is IV only. Uh, but gentamicin and tobramycin are IV or IM. They interfere with bacterial protein synthesis. They bind to the 30S ribosomal subunit, um, and and uh, uh, it results in a defective bacterial cell membrane, which kills them. Um, they do have a few box warnings to be aware of. Nephrotoxicity, ototoxicity, and respiratory paralysis, respiratory issues. Um, so used with caution in combination with other nephrotoxic drugs. Um, the ototoxicity, that can cause hearing loss. Early toxicity is associated with kind of a high-pitched sound. Um, vestibular toxicity resulting in balance issues. And they can cause fetal harm if given in pregnancy. And
0: then we also have our carbapenems, so we have Doropenum, imipenem, meropenem, ertapenem, and uh, all of these are potential options. Um, we know ertapenem tends to have a little bit less of a or a little bit more narrow. Um, spectrum of activity usually doesn't include like things like pseudomonas. And uh, we do have to worry about some interactions, um, specifically that uh, carbapenems can decrease serum concentrations of valproic acid. So if the patient is using, um, you know, divalprox, valproic acid for uh, whether it be a mood stabilizer or is it um, for epilepsy, you know, we could lose control of the their comorbidity um, if given with the carbapenem. And uh, we do know that from a seizure risk standpoint, um, if they have a history of seizures, you know, or other risk factors for lowering their seizure thresholds, the carbapenems can also decrease that seizure threshold further and uh, make that risk even more more so. Right. Adverse effects, they're more common. They're beta-lactam, so we know GI issues are going to always be an issue. And then the, uh, you know, the patients who are... Um, also have CKD, just use some caution with imipenem uh, because if they had, do have uh, impaired renal function, especially with imipenem, they may have an even higher risk for that seizure um, occurrence.
1: Right. Um, there are some situations where um, you may need to consider if the patient has risk factors for a multidrug-resistant infection. Um, if they do have those risk factors, then um, you may need to consider broad-spectrum gram-negative coverage like cefepime, Um, unless they have a risk for ESBL, um, piptazo, miripenem, or amipenem, possibly. If not, ceftriaxone, piptazo, cipro, and levofloxacin can be okay. Um, But uh, vancomycin, uh, we're familiar with it. It inhibits bacterial cell wall synthesis, but can also cause ototoxicity, nephrotoxicity, and has an infusion-related reaction that can be common, as well as phlebitis. Um, With it, it has a lot of monitoring um, that if you've worked in a hospital and a pharmacy, you're probably familiar with, but um, have to monitor renal function and do dose adjustments in CKD. You also need trough concentrations, which are generally drawn before the fourth dose with a gold trough of 15 to 20 micrograms per milliliter. And you want to use caution if you're giving it with other um, nephrotoxic drugs as well.
0: And then alternatively, we could also use, and it's kind of going in that same, if we're trying to cover for the gram-positive side, you know, we could use vancomycin, but alternatively we could use something like um, daptomycin, uh, which is a little bit different of an agency, but, but the class is a cyclic lipopeptide. Um, mechanistically, it's inhibiting all intracellular replication processes, including protein synthesis, um, which eventually leads to cell death. Uh, the kind of unique thing about this is you do want to do um, weekly CPK checks, um, to because the risk of myopathies and even cases of rhabdomyolysis have, have uh, occurred with patients taking dapagliflozin. Um, it can also cause a falsely increased INR reading, and um, this is not associated with an actual increase in bleeding risk. But if somebody's on like warfarin therapy, it's going to definitely. Um, change how they're, they're managed because we can't go up their, their INR like we normally would. Right. Uh,
1: there's also linazolid, which binds to the 50S ribosomal subunit. Um, it has some monitoring involved because it can decrease platelets, hemoglobin, white blood cells. Uh, it can also increase serotonin levels, interestingly, and blood pressure when used with other adrenergic drugs. Um, it can also cause peripheral neuropathy and optic neuritis. All right, and let's talk a little bit
0: briefly about uh, the multi drug resistant gram-negative bacteria uh, treatment options that we have. So it's a more, uh, even broader spectrum of activity with, with these uh, carbapenems um, with beta-lactamase inhibitors built in. So we have we have um, vebomir, which is mirapenem, and Vaberbactam. Uh, uh, this does have very excellent... Uh, Empiric broad coverage uh, They can be used in patients who are severely ill. Typically covers pseudomonas, and you know the the Vabramir, the beta lactamase component is typically reserved for patients who um, either have or are at risk for extensively drug resistant pathogens. So it, if the basically the patient's not it's not susceptible to one or more agents in all but two or fewer antimicrobial classes, um, or if the patient is found to have a carbapenem resistant um, Enterobacterials, and then that would be another reason why we would kind of jump to these more uh, intense you know, medications. Same thing with um, imbapenem and relibactam. Uh, Ricarbio is the brand name. It's uh, used for multidrug-resistant pseudomonas, as, and it also covers um, organisms that express KPC+, which is the carbapenemase um, enzyme. Yep. So the, the couple different broad-spectrum options
1: there's also an interesting option that kind of fits into that category as well, which is cefadiracol, um, which is a 4 cephalosporin that is indicated for the treatment of complicated UTIs in patients who don't really have any other options. It has a novel mechanism of action um, uh, for uh, transport across the outer membrane that can overcome the effects of membrane permeable permeability mutations like in pseudomonas Um, similar to the others reserved for patients who are at risk for extensively drug-resistant pathogens so they're non susceptible to one or more agents in all but two or fewer antimicrobial classes or they have carbapenem resistant enterobacterials it does have renal dose adjustments below 60 um, milliliters per minute and um, you want to use caution if a patient has a history of a seizure disorder now, if you suspect that
0: the patient is uh, that has a that has a complicated GI is infected with an enterococcus pathogen, um, and or you have proof of that based on the susceptibility report, then we typically would tra- transition to something like ampicillin um, given as a an IV every four hours plus gentamicin for initial therapy. And once the patient has been on therapy for forty eight hours or um, once they're afebrile, then we would kind of transition them over to um, Oral therapy, so in this case, like amoxicillin for 10 to 14 days, assuming again that it's susceptible to amoxicillin. And then if uh, patients, you know, you're thinking along the lines of like Bactrim, just know that the the resistance rates are much higher with Bactrim. So if you, you know, again, suspecting enterococcus, think ampicillin, gentamicin, and then transition to amoxicillin after that.
1: Um, As far as how long you should treat, um, shorter courses, like seven days, are reasonable if the patient improves rapidly. Longer courses, like 10 to 14 days, are more reasonable if severe initial presentation, um, if the patient presents more severely initially, or if they have a delayed response. Um, Interestingly, the European guidelines recommend stopping treatment three to five days after elimination of the complicating factor, if it's like a catheter or a kidney stone or something like that. Um, and then um, just some things to note, it's important to convert IV to PO when the patient shows improvement in symptoms um, to, because there are issues that can result from having the IV placed and using IV medications plus cost. So if we can convert them to PO, that's important. And if symptoms persist to or worsen after 48 to 72 hours, you might need to do further evaluation, pelvic or abdominal imaging, um, get infectious disease to consult, something like that um, to consider.
0: Well, there we go. We'll, uh, did it recurrent UTIs. We'll get into some of that at another time, but, uh, that's at least our initial therapy for complicated and uncomplicated. It is. Hope we covered everything. If they, I And if that made like no sense as I was kind of like working my way through those algorithms, uh, if you're a visual learner, like I am, um, like I said, up to date is the, uh, source that I was using for those algorithms. If you want to take a look at them yourself, but, uh, If you, again, are a free CE member, make sure you claim your one-hour continuing education credit after this episode. And uh, make sure you check out uh, our partner, uh, Pearls, which is a drug info app. They have all kinds of great algorithms and pharmacotherapy refreshers. So you can go to pearls.com slash core consult Rx and check out their free version of their app. And then also for those of you who like more structured uh, lecture styles with PowerPoints and all that cool stuff, um, check out the Patreon, which has the pharmacotherapy lectures and uh, PowerPoint slides. You can download practice questions, all kinds of stuff and that is um, patreon.com slash coreconsultrx. And at least for a limited time, for those of you who sign up for the Patreon and um, sign up for an annual subscription, which is basically you get them like a month free if you do that. And so instead of $3 a month, it's like $30 and some change. Um, if you do the whole year, uh, for those of you who are paying for the the annual membership fee, um, Dr. Alex Poppin has given us uh digital copies of his book, high powered medicine, landmark clinical trial reviews and uh, order to um, thank you guys for, for joining the Patreon, We'll give you a free copy. So if you join Patreon, you pay the annual fee, send uh after we verify the, you know, the membership and all that, I will send you an email with a link that you can download the book. If you don't get it, definitely send me a message, but should be keeping up with, with all those. And uh, if you have any questions for Cole or myself, make sure you reach out to us via email, social media platforms, the text, you get the phone number and the, the show notes, whatever floats your boat, we will do our best to answer in a somewhat timely fashion, or at least in the next three months. <laughs> and uh, thank you guys so much for listening, and we'll see you guys on the next episode. Have a good one.